0: All right, and the rest of you, whether you are uh, joining us uh, in the family service, in the gym, uh, or you're online, or right here in the worship center, uh, it is awesome to be together. Um, Grab your message notes, grab your Bible, and I want to invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is actually the sixth of six consecutive chapters in the book of Daniel, each that has kind of a new story to it, a new story of adventure and courage and heroism, Um, And I know some of you have been wondering, as we've been going through the book of Daniel for a while now, hey, when do we actually get to some lions in this story? Today is your lucky day. We are going to uh, see Daniel and the lions today. So our study throughout this whole thing has been called Thriving in Babylon, because each of these six chapters in a unique way tells the story of how Daniel and his friends not only just survive life living in uh, Babylon as exiles in the very uh, wicked uh, Babylon culture of the sixth century, but it talks about how they actually um, thrive in in that Babylonian culture. Now, as we said, Babylon in the 6th century BC was a very wicked and foreign culture for Daniel and his friends. But that word Babylon has come to mean any culture or any kind of world system that is opposed to God. And so with that kind of, uh, that kind of, of definition in mind, it's an easy jump for us to, to say that we understand that we live in a, in a very real way in kind of today our own 21st century Babylon on. And so the question that I hope you've been asking and starting to see getting answered is, how does Daniel do it? How does he not just kind of make it through, but how does he actually shine for God and thrive even as a foreigner and an exile in this uh, different culture? So this idea of thriving in Babylon, and that phrase is not uh, new to us. We actually got it from a book by uh, Pastor Larry Osborne. And let me just read to you a few uh, paragraphs about what he says about this idea of thriving in Babylon. He says, when it comes to the book of Daniel, his incredible example of how to live and thrive in the most godless of environments is the main lesson that we don't want to miss. So this is the main lesson throughout the book of Daniel. It is a template that is particularly relevant today. And each week, we've looked at these stories that are so ancient and so foreign, and yet especially relevant to these times that we are living in right here, right now. So he says, we live in a world gone haywire. Our moral fabric seems to be decaying at breakneck speed. Things that were once shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated the previously unimaginable has become commonplace in a few short decades our culture's response to bible believing christians has gone from a grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to now outright hostility he says it's mind boggling and a bit scary and it is but then he offers these words of hope he says yet daniel steps into our confusion and our fear with a book that offers us a model for not just for surviving but actually thriving in the midst of a godless environment. He found a way in a culture far more wicked than anything we face to glorify and serve God with such integrity and power that kings, peasants, and an entire nation turned to acknowledge the splendor of the living God, which raises the question, how did he Do it? And that's our question this morning. It's been our question really throughout this whole thing. Now, the good news is to me, chapter six is not only one of the more famous stories uh, of the the stories in Daniel, but to me, I think it offers one of the clearest kind of blueprints um, or summaries of how to really thrive in an ungodly world. Because here's one thing that we just need to acknowledge right up front, and that is until Christ's return, the world's system, the world's culture is going to be at odds with. Christian values and and Christian life. That's the result of living in a a fallen world. We live in a world that is marred by sin, and it's not just there outside of the church. It's inside the church as well. But because we live in this sinful and fallen world, we just need to acknowledge that that there's always going to be this tension that, that things seem like they're opposed to God. And here's the deal. It was true in Daniel's day, and it was true in Jesus's day, and it is true in our day as well. Now throughout history, this is kind of an oversimplification, but hopefully it's helpful. I think there are kind of two main approaches that Christians have taken to living in an ungodly culture. And the first one is to look around at the culture and say, well, our response is just going to be to conform to the culture, right? This is the "win in Rome approach that says, well, if everybody's doing it, and that's kind of the common thinking and the common behavior, I might as well just kind of go along with it. Now, this temptation as a Christian to just conform to the world is is a really strong one. It's a really powerful temptation because for one, it's easier, right? And two, it tends to be more popular to say, well, if everybody's doing it, I might just kind of go along with and act like and think like everybody else. So a biblical example of this is most of the kings of Israel and Judah leading up to the time of Daniel. So there's that period where where God's people from the very beginning were always supposed to stand out as different and distinct from the culture, and and they struggled with this throughout the history of Israel, but especially in that period known as the kings leading up to Daniel, uh, we see that the kings of Israel and Judah have this idea that they just want to be like all the other nations around them. So they're just as greedy, and the injustice is just as great, the way they treat people. The immorality is the same. The idolatry is the same. They just kind of say, we're going to be like all the other nations around them. Ultimately, this is why Daniel's in Babylon, because God brings a judgment after telling them, you've got to be different, and they, they, they didn't do it, didn't do it. So ultimately, we see the fall of those nations. And here's the thing. Many Christians today And I want to just say this, often with very good intentions. Often the intention is that I want to be loving and I want to be tolerant. But because of that, we tend to kind of conform our beliefs and we conform our actions to the popular culture. The problem is this leads many Christians and many churches to lose its distinctiveness, right? Like we said, from the beginning, God's people are supposed to stand out as different. But if we say we're just going to be the same as everyone else what's the point? The church is supposed to stand out as distinct. And so churches lose their distinctiveness. They lose what is often called their prophetic voice to speak truth into a culture. Even just do it in a loving way, but that prophetic voice to to say, uh, we're over here going to do our best to say this is the way God says to go. So, um, You don't have to look any farther than some of the empty cathedrals of Europe to see the result of this kind of conform uh, to the culture sort of mentality. Because if the church is just the same as everywhere else, pretty quickly it becomes irrelevant and eventually it becomes kind of empty. Um, I saw an article just this week that was talking about some of the big cathedrals in the great cities of Europe and, and how they're empty and what are they supposed to do with these big buildings. And this article was how they're turning them into luxury hotels and, and cafes and, and dance clubs and all these things. So that's one way to approach a culture that is opposed to God. Say, I'm just going to conform to it. I'm just going to look like everybody else. On the other side of that, kind of the other pendulum, is what you would have maybe called the fight and isolate approach. Here you don't blend in with the culture, but you fight against it, you separate yourself out, and before long you have all your own Christian music, you have all your own Christian movies, you have all your own Christian clothing, and before long it seems like your only interaction is with other Christian people right? There's this kind of uh, Christians and churches tend to create a little bubble. And before long, the only interaction with the culture is to kind of stand on the sidelines and shout into the culture how bad they are and how wicked those things are. And we're just going to stay over here. We're going to be removed, but we're just going to kind of lob these bombs into how bad and how wicked those people are. A biblical example of this in the the New Testament are the, the Pharisees, But a fascinating Old Testament example of this is Jonah, and it's a great comparison to see the the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Daniel, because Jonah was a proud and righteous prophet, and he decided that he was going to take a righteous stand for good against the people of Nineveh. And if you know anything about the people of Nineveh, Jonah's got a pretty good case. These people were proudly very opposed to God and very wicked in so many ways. And so Jonah decides, I'm going to take this righteous stand against these people. The problem is, as he's over there taking this righteous stand, he misses God's heart for the Ninevites. And in fact, God has to confront him several different times, including swallowing him in a giant fish and spitting him out of the giant fish. Because while he's so busy about trying to be righteous that he's He's missing God's heart that God loves and cares for the Ninevites, and that even though they're far away from God, God's heart has always been for people that are far from Him. We're going to see that again today, and so that's the example of Jonah. And and so we still see this, of course, in our world today. Um, And if the only thing that the world hears from Christians is how bad they are and how much we're against them, is it any wonder that they are not going to be eager to listen to our message? Is it any wonder that they're not going to be eager to be drawn to the message and the love of our Savior? So those are kind of the two most common approaches. I said that's kind of elementary, but you can kind of put things in those camps. A third way then comes along, and Daniel comes along, and he shows us a different way. Not the way of conforming to Babylon, not the way of isolated uh, judgment of Babylon, but the way of thriving in Babylon. And I want to suggest what he does is this, is he stands out as a follower of God as distinct There is something in Daniel that is attractive even to the non-believing culture. And because he stands out in this kind of distinct and godly way that he's able to be a part of actually transforming the culture. This is what Jesus calls being a a light in the uh, city on the hill or the light of the world. In fact, the biblical examples of this kind of distinct godly living even in a, a wicked culture are Daniel and Jesus Jesus is the one who really stands out for this, and the early church really stands out for this. And so again, it begs the question how did they do it? And I think today's passage is a great roadmap for us to follow. So let's dig in together to Daniel um, chapter six. Daniel chapter six. Now Daniel chapter six in some ways is an easy passage to preach. In some ways it's a hard one because it's a passage that most people think that they've known this story their whole life, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. In fact, how many of you remember learning the story of Daniel and the lion's den as a child, maybe in church? How many of you learned it on like a little flannel graph thing like this where they move the character? I see, yeah, I know. That's how most of us learn that. And so So it's easy to kind of think, oh, I've got this story nailed. But here's what I actually think. I actually don't think Daniel chapter 6 is so much the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's the story in large part of Daniel before the lion's den and some of the habits that set him apart. In fact, in Daniel 6, you're going to see there's actually very little space given to his time with the lions, but there's a lot of space given to this chapter to the character of Daniel and to what I want to call the habits of Daniel, who he was long before he even went to the the lion's den, and these are the things that kind of set him apart to really thrive, to thrive in the good times and the difficult uh, times. And so that's what we're going um, to look at uh, today. It's actually the Greek philosopher Aristotle who... uh, said, who lived not too long after Daniel, about 100 years after Daniel, and Aristotle said this, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, and we're going to see Daniel stands out for his excellence, excellence is not an act. It's not a one-time thing. Excellence is a habit. So as we walk through this passage, I'd like you to pay special attention, and I'll try to call them out to some of the habits that we see in Daniel, and these are the things that we're going to be encouraged to live out as well. So uh, as we jump in, remember uh, last week, by this time in the story, Daniel is an old man. Uh, He's been in Babylon for almost 70 years at this point. Technically, he still lives in Babylon. But remember, a new world superpower has come and kind of swept the Babylon Babylonians out of power, and now the Medes and the Persians are kind of in charge. They're still you know, over that Babylonian land, and there is a new king. It's no longer King Nebuchadnezzar or any of the Babylonians. It is Darius the Mede, King Darius um, the Mede, and the Medo-Persian empire has just been expanding and growing as they're taking over all these places, growing in power and influence, and so they need more kind of governors, more people to oversee uh, their different regions of the land. And that's where we pick up the story of Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, and it goes like this. It pleased King Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. A satrap is, is like a, just a governor or a local official. So they appointed 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. And three administrators, with three administrators over them. One of whom was Daniel. Daniel. The satraps were accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by what? His excellent qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so I think that brings us to the first habit that I want to point out from Daniel's life that allows him to thrive in Babylon, and that is the habit of integrity and what the Bible calls excellence. We see this especially in Daniel's workplace. So we see this throughout the whole book, right? Starting way back in chapter 1, the pattern that we see time and time again for both Daniel and their friends is that they are consistently being promoted, It seems like every story ends with them being promoted and given more authority and given them more responsibility because people recognize them for their honesty, for their integrity, their hard work, their wisdom. And so they just kind of continually are given more responsibility and and kind of rise up the ladder. And this is actually a pattern that you see in Scripture, uh, not every time, but often. You see it in like Joseph in the book of Genesis. You see it with Joshua. You see it with Nehemiah. You see it with uh, Esther and Mordecai, who all have places of, of positions of influence because of their character and integrity that stands out. And this was a habit that we see in Daniel's life. He was committed to that, especially in his workplace, And so uh, there's a movement here in our church that we call work as worship. And it's not unique to our church. It's kind of all over different places. And the idea is a very simple one, which is that worship is not singing a few songs on Sunday morning. That is part of worship. But worship is all of our life live for the glory of God. And one of the places that we tend to spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy is in our workplace. So how do I take that that time that I spend there and and turn it as a, a way to even worship God and to serve God, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the whole week? There's a great scripture in Colossians chapter three that says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. One simple application of this, but important application, is this. Christians should be the best employees that their company has. We are supposed to be the people that stand out above and beyond for doing a good job, right? For, we're the people that are supposed to treat all people, you know, employees, other employees, other clients, all kinds of things with respect and kindness. We are the kind of people that are supposed to honor even the authorities above us. And I know that there are exceptions to this rule, but for the most part, when you live with that kind of integrity and you have that kind of habit of integrity and excellence, you will, like Daniel, often be put in positions of more influence and and even power. And so that's one of the things that we see uh, that sets Daniel apart as someone who can thrive in Babylon. And I want to point out that one kind of unique way that Daniel stands out for this is in the way that he honors even his Babylonian bosses. So this relationship that Daniel has with even the pagan kings is kind of a really unique and I think a really wonderful thing. So in the, remember before in chapter two, Steve brought up a Nebuchadnezzar who was a very wicked king um, and yet Daniel had developed this relationship with him. And so in Daniel chapter two, Daniel's got to go to Nebuchadnezzar bring him bad news. And the interaction that Daniel has with Nebuchadnezzar is built out of this idea that there's relationship between the two. And so he goes to him and he says, says, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish I didn't have to tell you this. I wish this bad news that I'm about to give was about someone else. It doesn't mean he doesn't tell the truth, but he, he does it with a sense of compassion and relationship. And then he delivers Nebuchadnezzar the news. Now, here's the thing. Two chapters later, Nebuchadnezzar is going to hit this real crisis in his life. He's going to have kind of an emotional and a mental breakdown. And in that time of loss and suffering for Nebuchadnezzar, who does he turn to to find help? He turns to the person that he knows already cares about him. He turns to Daniel. And ultimately, he turns to Daniel's God. And that's because of the integrity and the excellence that Daniel has. Then Darius comes along and it's this whole new king. And you see that Daniel again develops this kind of relationship with King Darius. In fact, if you were to read every verse in Daniel 6, you see back and forth the concern that that Daniel has for him. But Darius, it's almost like this bromance between the two where Darius is so kind and and so uh, deferential uh, to, to Daniel. And here's the thing. Daniel and King Darius differed greatly in their theology. Their theology couldn't have been more different. Their political approach was very different. Their morality, completely different. Daniel never had to compromise in those things. But even though they were different in those things, it didn't stop Daniel from actually having a relationship where he cared about him. It didn't stop him from being a friend. And so when Darius has an opportunity to turn to a new truth, who's he going to turn to? The guy that has treated him well all along. So I experienced just maybe just a little glimmer of this um, just this week. Uh, I was invited to, to give the invocation at the, the Lodi City Council. To, so they have a different pastor or religious leader um, do a, a prayer before the city council meetings. And so this was my time to go and do that. And, and so I, I got ready and I, I went there and I got there early enough to try to you know, say hi to the people that were um, There in the audience and, you know, to greet the city council members, say hi to the city staff and stuff like that. And as I was talking to these different ones, I heard on more than one occasion people actually say basically these words, thank you that First Baptist is a church that cares about our community. More than one person said thank you that First Baptist is wanting to make a difference. And this idea was they were willing to step in. And so how proud was I to be able to say that's what people think about you right? This is not a group that wants to just stand on the side and shout all the complaints that we have. This is a group of people that says, you know what? Like Daniel, we want to be engaged. We want to be involved. We want to be difference makers in our community. And it's not always easy. In fact, it's usually very difficult, but it's the pattern that ultimately leads to transformation. And so I was thrilled to be able to just hear a little bit of that um, this week. So good job um, to all of you. Well, the the story continues on because here's the deal. Even if you live with that kind of integrity, even if you start to kind of rise in in influence, there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be people that are opposed to that. And that's what we see in verse 4. Back to the story. It says this. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his condemnation. Conduct of government affairs, but what they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's a pretty cool thing that they would say about you know the the coworkers would say about you that they were neither corrupt nor negligent. And so they looked for something, but finally these men said, "We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless." It has something to do with the law of his God. So the idea is, even when you live with integrity, there still will be those times of attack. And as I was reading this, I I guess at some level there was a little bit of comfort to me that that nothing's really changed, especially in politics in 2,500 years. I feel like those verses literally could be just ripped right out of uh, the headlines today because you have this idea that there's such fierce rivalry and jealousy that they decide they have got to take this guy Daniel down. So we've got to find, you know, some corruption in him. We've got to sling some mud at him. We've got to create a scandal. But they can't find anything to criticize Daniel for. And so they say The only thing we can criticize him for is this kind of crazy relationship that he has uh, with his God. Now, when the Medes and Persians took over, uh, a lot of things stayed the same, but some things were different. And one of the things about the Persian Empire that was actually way ahead of their time is they had a little bit different form of government. Most governments were like the king was the ultimate authority, whatever he said, that's what goes, very autocratic. The Persian and the Mede culture actually was more modern, kind of what we're more used to, which was what you call a rule of law form of government. So the idea was even the king was not above the law. And so if you made a law, even the king couldn't necessarily cancel that. And you see that, that you know, in, in different places throughout the Bible. And so these guys decide that if that's what they're going to have to do, so real sneaky-like, they go to King Darius and they say, hey, Darius, we got a great idea for a new law for your empire. And the law should be this, that nobody for the next 30 days should be able to pray or worship or bow down to anybody except you. And by the way, if they do, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw them to the lions. That den of lions we got over there, that's what we're going to do. We're going to throw them to the den of lions. Now apparently this played on Darius's ego and why wouldn't it? And so he says, great, that sounds like a great law. He pulls out his pen and he signs that a law and now it is an irreversible law. The only problem was apparently Darius, Darius wasn't thinking about his friend Daniel, and so now what is Daniel going to do? All he's ever done is been faithful to Yahweh, and so he's headed for problems, right? So what's he going to do? Is he going to conform to the culture? Is he going to to fight against it? What is Daniel going to do? How is he going to stand out? Look at verse 10. I love this. It's a great verse. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God. How? Just as he had done before. How? Just as he had done before. In fact, you might want to even underline those words just as he had done before. You see, what does Daniel do when he faces that pressure? He does the same thing that he's always done. For years, he just says, I'm going to be faithful to obey God. You see, Daniel long ago had established a habit, and it was the habit of regular prayer. Three times a day, at least, for the last 70 years, Daniel had got down on his knees, opened the windows, faced towards Jerusalem, and he prayed to God. He did it in Daniel chapter 1 when they tried to get him to eat the forbidden foods. He did it in chapter 2 when they said, unless you come up with a, 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 a an interpretation of this dream, we're going to kill you and all the wise men. He and his friends did it in chapter 3 when they said, here's this golden statue. You've got to bow down or, or we're going you know, to kill you uh, for that. And So he did this time and time again. Whenever Daniel, Daniel was in trouble, uh, whenever he, he faced those things, he turned to God in prayer. His response was as Natural as breathing. So three times a day over 70 years works itself out to be in about 77,000 times that Daniel had knelt in prayer. So why would he change now? So think about Daniel in this situation. There were a lot of different ways that Daniel could have responded when this decree came out. For one, he could have responded with, with panic Oh my goodness, you know, what am I going to do now? And, and full of terror and anxiety. And I think a lot of us would do that if, you know, an edict was passed like this. He could have responded with pride and said, don't they know who I am? You know, I'm about to be appointed over all of the the kingdom. Don't, you know, and he could have had this pride. He could have responded with kind of a political power, which is to say, well, if they, you know, said this about me, then, then I've got to hit back at them. And so I'm going to exercise my political power, and I'm going to sling mud at them, and I'm going to slander them. He could have responded like that. But instead, how does he respond like he always had, with prayer? And so can I ask you, would you say that you have the habit of regular prayer. I think this is the most important thing that Daniel had and why he could thrive with in Babylon, because he always could come back to his relationship with God. No matter what came his way, good and bad, his relationship with God was his priority. So how about you? Do you have that habit of regular prayer? Because a lot of us tend to pray to God only when things go bad. And it's not like God doesn't hear you and and God is there even in those situations, but it's so different than Daniel who just has this habit long before the crisis. And as I said, I think this is his greatest secret to thriving in Babylon. Well, uh, according to the, the, the new law of the Medes and the Persians, once the law is made, you've got to follow it. And so King Darius is actually really upset about this. He didn't mean to box Daniel in in this way. But when you get to verse, verse 16, it says this. So the king gave the order. Didn't have any choice. He gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And I think this verse actually points to one more habit that I want to bring up, and that is the habit of trusting God for the outcome. Because the king says, this is what's going to happen, and I want you to notice what Daniel doesn't do. Daniel doesn't conform to the culture. At this point, it would have been very easy for Daniel to say, well... You know, the law is just for, for 30 days, so I'll, you know, I'll put off praying for a month, and then I'll get back to it after that. Or he could have done maybe what I would do. He'd be like, well, I'll just pray quietly in my heart, and they won't know. But no, he says, I'm not going to conform. I'm going to keep doing that. But also, he doesn't push back. There is this sense that he is resigned, that God has been with him in the past, and so God will be with him in the future. He trusts God for the outcome. And we see that that this is really a theme throughout the book of Daniel, this idea that God is with him through the good and the bad, that God is sovereign or God is in charge. Way back in Daniel 1, we saw that the book begins with this phrase, that God carried Daniel and his friends into Babylon. And that's such a strange phrase because it seems like evil is winning, right? Why would God carry them to Babylon? Babylon's the enemies. But it's God's way of saying, wherever you are, I am with you. It may feel like this culture has gone crazy, and it has, but I am with you. And so Daniel has this habit that I am going to trust God for the outcome. Now, it doesn't say this, but I kind of think Daniel probably thinks at this point, well, that's the end of it. I've lived a long, good life, but I look down at those lions. Um, they seem really scary. I think this is going to be uh, the end of, of my life as he looked down at those lions. And lions are really scary. I just have to tell you. So I've, I've had the privilege of being on a few, like, African safaris, and it's, it's amazing um, to see any of the animals, but to see the, you know, the giraffe or the, the elephant, and it's all really cool. But then there's something really powerful that happens on these trips trips when you come upon a pride of, of lions. And maybe you're with a, a ranger or a guide who's joking and laughing, but suddenly when you come close to the lions, everything gets deadly serious. And everything, you know, suddenly everybody's quiet. and There's kind of this tension rises. And why is that? It's because the lion will eat you. The lion <laughs> will eat you. And Daniel looked down in that lion's den, and I know he trusted God, but I just got to think, he thinks, well, this is the end. I pray to God, but God's going to answer this prayer by taking me to heaven. This is what it says in verse 17. So a stone was brought, after they'd thrown him in, a stone was, was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. By the way, why is it that so many people think rolling a giant stone in front of something is going to keep God out, right? I mean, if the Bible teaches us anything, God's not intimidated by the giant stone rolled in front of it. But that's what they did. And then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Darius was upset about this. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to been able to rescue you from the lions. And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I have been found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Let me just point out one final habit that we see in Daniel, and that is the habit of glorifying God through the good and the bad, he, he has this acknowledgement that God should be glorified. And he glorifies God, in this case, for shutting the mouth of the lions. Verse 23, it says, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And then Daniel was lifted from the den. No wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At that king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And bef- I know that's the that's just, I know, it's a little rough. That's the Persian culture there. <laughs> I just, I'm just reading here. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. I think one of the reasons that is included there is actually because it'd be real easy to say, well, you know, Daniel survived the lion's den because the lions, they weren't hungry. They'd already just eaten. That's not the case. As soon as other people were thrown in, um, they were eaten. The, the point is it was a miracle of God. And that, you guys, is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's the story of how Daniel could face even the the worst trial with confidence. Why? Because of this consistent, faith-filled, habitual relationship that he had with God through the years. He just lived like he always lived. And I think that's the story. But you know what else this is? And this is so powerful and so important. This is not just a story of how Daniel personally thrived in the the culture. This is a story of how God used him to make a significant impact of transformation in the culture. This is not just a story about Daniel. This is a story about how transformation takes place even in a culture that seems very distant and wicked from God. I actually think the last few verses of Daniel chapter 6 are, are oftentimes forgotten and left unread, but I think they might be not only the most important verses, but I actually think what we're about to read is a bigger miracle than Daniel not being eaten uh, by the lions because this is how the chapter ends. If you don't have your Bibles open, you've got to open them because you've got to see this. Verse 25 It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the Nations and the people of every language in all the earth. Let me just remind you this here, right around Babylon, Babylon was was right near the place where the Tower of Babel, back in the book of Genesis, originally the, the language and the nations were scattered. Right? But God's heart had always been for those nations. He always wanted the, the nations to know. Remember, there's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, he's, he issues a decree that all of the nations and all of the languages have to bow down. And so all of the nations and all of the languages have always been in God's view at this time. And God supernaturally inspires Darius to get that because this is gonna be for all people and every language and all the earth. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how far you are from God, Verse 26 says this, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. By the way, if you're keeping score... That is the second Babylonian king to surrender their life to follow after Daniel's God. The second one converted to be a follower of Yahweh. The second one who issues a decree that throughout the nation, Daniel's God should be honored. The second one that writes literally a a song of praise that's so beautiful. Like we could sing that as a worship song still today. It's the transformation of a culture. And isn't that what we want to see? Isn't that what we want to see? Our goal is is not just to conform to the culture, to, to just fit in, to be tolerant. Our goal is not just to isolate and judge the culture. That's not helping them. But our call is to step up and to live for Christ in such a way that the light shines bright enough from a city on the hill, from a light of the world, that people see it and glorify their God. And that's our call. And Daniel shows us how to do it, and Jesus does as well. Hey, as we end this morning, you know, it's real easy to come to these Bible stories and think, hey, that's all fine and good, you know, but Daniel's a a different deal. Like, Daniel's this spiritual superhero, and Daniel really does stand out as a great example. But I want you to notice the habits that led Daniel to bring about transformation in his culture. I mean, God did it, but, but this is how God used Daniel. Notice these habits. Integrity. He was honest. He honored and he cared about his bosses. He treated them well. He had a regular time of prayer. He trusted in God for the circumstances. He glorified God in the good and the bad things. There is nothing on that list that is only exclusive to superheroes. Every single one of us can do all of those things. And when we do, the light shines brightly and God is glorified. And that's what it's all about. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the story of Daniel, and we thank you for his simple faith, Lord, to stand out and to stand up as someone who is distinct, even in his culture. And I pray for myself and for my friends here today. God, you know that we live in crazy times, and our culture seems to be running away from you as fast as it can. Give us the wisdom, Lord, of how to stand and how to be a light for you, not that pushes people away, but draws them to you, the one true and awesome God. So, Father, I just thank you for this, and I pray that, that each life here and that this church family would be known as a city on the hill, the light of the world, to the glory of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.